This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. And welcome to another episode of Queen City Nerves News Hounds Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Pitkin, and today I have uh, one of those guests that I'm just surprised it's been this long for me to get him on. Uh, we have local organizer Hector Vaca with Action NC. What's going on, Hector? Not much. Just having a wonderful day. Thanks for inviting me onto the show. Absolutely. It was one of those things where it's uh, you sent me a press release about some recent action that you were involved in, some recent organizing up in D.C., and... It was one of those things where I just was thinking about putting next week's podcast together at that point and just thinking Hector can just come and talk because we've known each other since the creative loafing days, right? I've been <laughs> I've been sort of that's when I was cutting my teeth covering activism and occupy and everything that came along in the uh in the activist scene and I think that's when we became aware of each other. Yeah, back then I was still sort of a baby organizer. Mm-hmm. I had only been organizing for a few years. Right. Um, so right now you are training director and immigrant justice director with Action NC. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah I'm training in our, um, and the um, immigrant justice director, but I'm also one of the founding staff members of Action NC. Mm-hmm. So let's get into that a little bit. Before we get into the details of your recent work around immigration locally and nationally, apparently, Um uh, Tell me a little bit about how that came about, how you got involved in organizing, how long you've been in Charlotte, sort of what led to the to where you are now. Well, I got a, I got a involved in organizing. Well, first off, I got involved in in politics mm-hmm. and just activism through skateboarding. Nice. I, I went to my first punk rock show and saw how they were collecting cans for those in need, and that just awakened something in me. And then when I went into college, I majored in Latin American Studies and International Political Science. So basically, international political science with a concentration in um, Latin America. Um, But what really got me into organizing, what really pushed me into it was working um, at a health food store. Um, Mm -hmm. I saw how the employees were treated like trash um, by Earth Fair, and um, they weren't happy. The management wasn't happy at the way that I educated my coworkers about what their labor rights were, and this was in South Carolina. And um, so they let me go. Right. And then um, I started working to bring a new political party to South Carolina. Um, at the time I thought, well, I'll do whatever job I can find while I find a quote unquote real job, not realizing that this was my gateway into community organizing. I worked a campaign in South Carolina, and they thought I did a great job, so I got hired at the time for the most um, powerful, um, longest-lasting community organization in the country, and that was in 2006. Um, What organization was that? I used to work for ACORN. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. And I was just a baby organizer back then, and that's what got me started in um, community organizing. Right. Earth Fair, I feel like they have a reputation for that, don't they, like to this day? I feel well, like it's been even recently. Yeah, back then they got bought out by a corporation and mm-hmm. policies changed. People with tattoos had to start hiding their tattoos, had to take away piercings. And uh, I witnessed, uh, to give a better idea of how Earth Fair um, operates, I witnessed the police beat down a, a black teenager. Mm-hmm. And when I tried to give my version of the story, the, the company accused me of being anti-police. And the video footage somehow disappeared. The footage that supported the young man. So yeah, I mean that's just the way they they've always operated. Right. That footage does have a tendency to disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me a little bit about Action and C and what 
where that idea came from to really launch your own sort of uh, organization after working with Acorn? Well, um, as I mentioned before, Acorn was the most powerful community organization in the mm-hmm. country. When I first moved to Charlotte, my office alone um, registered ele- over 11,000 people to vote in three months. Um, so th- we had that kind of pull in the community. We existed just to support the community, working families, and that didn't sit well with uh, the Republican Party on the national level. So legislation was passed um, to basically defund ACORN to make sure we couldn't get national or federal grants. And then there was a an effort by by the right to create um, f- fake news about, um, to borrow from the conservatives, right. create fake news about ACORN. They... Um, Somebody um, who was affiliated with the Breitbart uh, report, they um, they fabricated story. They edited video, and it was later found out that the video was edited. Oh, I think I remember this. Is that that guy uh, Jimmy something? Or, uh, he's like a yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. But I'm yeah, gonna, they they made believe they were trying to help a sex worker to get out of work, right. uh, get out of working as a sex worker, and then they edited the video to make it seem like we were advising people to hide their money from the government, mm-hmm. and it. It was shown that later on that it was already that it was edited, but by then it was already too late. Mm-hmm. Um, people lost their jobs. I lost my job at Acorn the same day that my father took his life. Oh wow! And that's the kind of impact it had on me as an organizer. But um, we felt um, after that, uh, my now executive director, but regional director back then, that the people in our community still needed somebody to help them elevate their voices. Mm-hmm. So we decided to. Um, to just form a brand new organization in North Carolina. We now have three offices, Fayetteville, Charlotte, and the Triangle, um, Action NC. Mm-hmm. Were you in Charlotte for that first, during that launch? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always lived in Charlotte since I moved to North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, what year what, did, what year did you guys launch? We launched in 2010, April 1st of 2010. Mm-hmm. So the way I sort of view it as someone who's covered a lot of different things you guys have done in the past is almost like there's three tent poles in terms of, in terms of, these are uh, obviously overlapping movements or, or, or issues, but there's housing rights, uh, something Jessica Moreno is very involved in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had Robert Dawkins on here a few times. He's sort of more into the public safety policing uh, tentpole, and yourself works a lot in immigration. Is that an accurate depiction of where you guys have come to be uh, today? Yeah. I started out at Acorn, I mean, at uh, Action NC doing tenant rights, mm-hmm. housing rights, and transitioned directly into immigrant justice. Mm-hmm. How did that sort of play out as someone? Uh, have you been sort of since moving to North Carolina and Charlotte uh, heavily involved in the Hispanic community, the Latino community? I've been involved since the day I got here. Mm-hmm. Um, our housing work back then um, focused on black and brown communities, um, but uh, since I spoke Spanish, I was able to reach a, a constituency that many people weren't able to talk mm-hmm. to, and that helped us to grow our immigration work. We started hearing their stories of people who were facing deportation or being attacked by the police uh, for not being able to speak the language and so on. And then little by little, the immigration work for Action and C grew. Mm-hmm. And what were your sort of first thoughts um, moving into Charlotte and and engaging with that community? Because I think on the outside looking in as a white guy, mm-hmm. we uh, can all be aware of s- how society is still segregated on a black and white dynamic and uh, even sort of communicate 
about that being there no you know language barriers but i think people just sort of don't even realize if they don't if they're not in east charlotte often or they're not in certain parts of the city they don't really realize that there is this an entirely other society almost you could call it uh, entirely other culture that's so present in the city and has all this stuff going on i've always said that it's why I enjoy Charlotte FC games. It's one of the first of sort of <laughs> events that I've seen where you really get that uh, diversity in not just black and white, but a more wide ranging diversity. And I'm just sort of ranting at this part, but was that something you noticed? Was that segregation something you expected or had seen elsewhere when you got here? Living in the South, mm-hmm. and I've definitely noticed it in North Carolina, but living in the South, I have noticed uh, somewhat of a segregation. Um, because sadly in the South, when we talk about race relations, when we talk about ethnicity, there's an automatic um, conversation about black and white. And if you mention the Latina community or any other community that's not um, U.S. African-American, I'm distinguishing that from um, other black communities. But here in the South, if you're not U.S., African-American or white, mm-hmm. no one really talks about you as much or you're not really taken into consideration. I know for myself, when I've gone to different meetings... I've been told um, back then that, my, that I wasn't oppressed, that my oppression didn't exist, even though I've had the police put a gun to my head accusing me of stealing a car before. Mm-hmm. I've been stopped by CMPD in this town driving while brown, even though they claim they were random traffic stops. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen so many different things. I've seen how the, the police, they question the immigrant community if they call about a crime. They question the immigrant community, the Latina community, and in a way that they're accusing them of the victim themselves of being the perpetrator. Um, and because of a lack of the language, it's always difficult um, because U.S. culture in general, you either have to speak English or English. Those are your choices. Right. Um, if you try to speak any other language, people look at you like uh, you should you should adapt to the U.S. You should become a U.S. citizen. You should be even though it's difficult to do that. So, yeah, there is a bit of a difference here, and um, that's been my experience growing up in the South period since mm-hmm. I moved here from New York. Right. I moved, when, I, when the way I look at it is when I lived in New York, I was a U.S.-born child of, of immigrant parents, Puerto Rican, Ecuadorian. Even Somehow in the South, I became an undocumented Mexican. Mm. And, and then, Just out of assumption. Yeah, and I've heard the black and brown community, I mean, the, the black and white community refer to me as a Mexican. Mm. There's not even a drop of Mexican in me. I'm Puerto Rican, Ecuadorian, because of the stereotypes we have here in the U.S. So there is that. And then just just the, um, what the media and what um, conservatives feed the public about who the immigrants are, We're always um, our families are always the, the strangers, those that came here and don't belong here. Or if we're here, we have to adapt and forget our culture. So there has been a pushback. And it is a different community, like you said. The Charlotte FC games is an example. Mm-hmm, right. It's a big party when they start mm-hmm. when it when before the game and after the game. Mm-hmm. And so, talking about that sort of evolution, would you say you've seen it uh, in the way that your community uh, is viewed by officials, or law enforcement specifically, in terms of like, all right, well, I'll just say, uh, even though there has been. Uh, controversy with his department since then on other stuff unrelated, but Gary McFadden was sort of boated into office based on his uh, promises and platform on discontinuing work with ICE. Mm -hmm. Uh, 287G, it was all the the biggest story of that election campaign. 
Uh, and, he, and he followed through on that, and it led to a lot of back and forth with him and the federal agency. Do you feel like that entire uh, back, like that, his being elected and following through on that promise has made a difference in terms of um, just community relations with that population? Uh, it's it's gone a long way in, in mm. improving uh, relationship between the immigrant community and uh, and law enforcement in general because Gary did deliver on getting rid of 287G, a program that is designed to take local law enforcement away from their job of protecting our community to interrogating people, to um, holding to, them, holding them to just racially profiling people because mm-hmm. through that program. If you look like you could possibly be undocumented, they hold you for um, for interview. But since he got rid of that, um, ICE tried to push um, other policies, like an expansion of um, secure communities or other things in order to share um, databases. So he, it, it did go a long way. Mm-hmm. And Gary also did a lot of other stuff with other communities of color that did go a long way to um, improving relations between the community and um, and the police. Mm-hmm. For example, the traffic stops in the richer size of town right. versus um, in the poor communities of color. So it's it's gone a long way, and we've been happy with Gary on that. We're happy that he continues fighting to keep law enforcement working on law enforcement, on criminal law enforcement, mm. versus enforcing civil laws, the, the purview of the federal government. Right, and his uh, department did actually announce about a year ago uh, – if not stopping altogether, then lessening traffic stops for certain non-dangerous offenses, uh, which I think is, goes a long way. But uh, that's a digression of the this conversation <laughs> altogether. Uh, those are the things we talk about when Robert comes in. But in terms of community work uh, in, in, in the um, immigrant community, you know, I've we've had in folks like Manolo have come in um, or from Manolo's Bakery. Um, and have, have discussed this a little bit, but just sort of the what folks on the outside looking in don't know about the community's organizing power and their way of networking and, and standing up for themselves. I remember I've covered it. I can't count how many protests in the city since I started back in the 2010 or so. And um, I don't know that I've ever seen a uh, march through Uptown as big as the one I saw with the Day Without Immigrants, I believe it was called, if, mm-hmm. if that was, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But I mean that—that's sort of something that you must be familiar with that other folks just don't aren't don't might not see is just how connected that community is. Yeah, the immigrant community has done some of the best actions, some of the best protests here in town that, that have actually made a difference. Um, I'm not sure if you remember, um, but um, several years ago, Action and Sea organized a 170 mile bicycle ride from Charlotte to the state capitol to get, um, at that time, Governor McCrory to stop supporting, um, I mean, to stop fighting against programs like DACA and DAPA and so on. Um, And that was a huge march from uh, uptown all the way to the intersection of Harris and Tryon. The immigrant community has done so much, for example, and to understand the power of the immigrant community, the immigrant community organized and got three banks, three national banks to stop financing private prisons. Mm-hmm. Private prisons that also affect the African-American community. Um, we got Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and SunTrust to stop financing private prisons, or at least commit to that. We've also gotten, um, the immigrant community has gotten CMS 
to, to actually allow undocumented parents, allow immigrant parents to volunteer in their children's schools. That shows the power of the immigrant community. Or last year when the flea market vendors um, rose mm -hmm. up and got city council to help them get a location to work. Really and heartfelt uh showing up at city council meetings and giving those speeches. Mm -hmm. So that shows the power of the immigrant community. The immigrant, and, and right now the immigrant community is still fighting uh, with CMPD regarding uh, the death of Ruben Galindo. And mm -hmm. so far the courts are going in the direction of the family. So yeah, a lot of great stuff has been done here through the immigrant community. Right. And as of late, um, I did want to talk a little bit about the, the street vendor uh, or the um, mm. flea market vendors. I've been reporting on the street vendors and no doubt I'm getting everything messed up. But um, the flea market vendors in formerly Eastland uh, sort of kicked out. We did a plenty of reporting on that. I'll link to it in the, in the, in the post about this podcast. But just as terms of following up, it's been around a year now since they were um, mm -hmm. since they're assigned, I guess you could say, or helped, collaborated with the city to finally find themselves a new location. Has that been working out? Is there good traffic there? Uh, it's some. It's right there in, uh, I forget the word, Galleria, mm -hmm. uh, in Southeast Charlotte. How's that coming along? It's um, It's been a struggle for them mm -hmm. still a little bit because people don't, at the beginning at least, uh, people didn't realize they were over there. Um, so having to inform their prior customers to go over there. Um, and then just the city council, other, um, to be honest, city council didn't really do its job in helping them find that location. One city council member worked with them while um, others have seek credit for something that they didn't really participate in. So uh, we're still pushing city council on that to actually deliver at least on their second promise, which was to ha help them financially. Mm. So it's up to city council to help them with that. But in terms of growing there, it, we, need them, we, we need more support from city council to help them continue growing. But also, they, they're still facing a little bit of pushback from the owners of other flea markets mm. that, uh, that would benefit if, these, uh, if this flea market fails. So it's been a bit of a struggle, mm -hmm. but they've managed to carve a little bit of a niche there to help them grow, especially with the support of the Levine family um, through Daniel Levine. Where do you turn to stay in touch with the city around you? Broadcast news isn't what it used to be. And commercial radio doesn't scratch that itch. If only there was one place you could get it all, when you want, wherever you want, on your schedule. There is the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city on your schedule at queencitypodcastnetwork.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. present we've seen a lot of um, immigration sort of becoming at the forefront of the news cycle throughout the last year or two I'd say with a you know it's sort of a steady thing at the border in terms of uh, where there's really rushes of people there's people there's folks coming up from Venezuela other folk other places uh, and then you don't really know where to to pick up from the Fox News fear-mongering to the serious problems, but there is stuff that is going on that inarguably needs to uh, be confronted. For example, before we even talk about this last week's border wall announcement, there was new sort of, uh, I don't even know what you'd call them, border 
barriers put into the Rio Grande, I believe, if, not, if I'm not mistaken, the geography, um, with you know very sharp devices and chain wire in in river where someone where people swim across. It's been sort of uh, some really troubling images coming out of there, and now just within the last week, uh, Joe Biden's uh, administration talking about building new border walls that I believe also go into the water, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But I know that you, uh, members of Action NC, have gone up to, to join with others in a coalition called the Fair Immigration Reform Movement in D.C. as a, I think it was just, what, early, earlier this month, so mm-hmm. last week or the week before. Um, tell me a little bit about just now as, as you see these issues that are happening at the border and how they translate moving north and east. Uh, what it is that you all have been doing to or fighting for on that front? First off, we we acknowledge the fact that the Biden administration has done a lot for so many communities in our country. Um, he's done great on health care. He's done great on so many different issues. But one of the issues where the Biden administration has nonstop failed, has yet to keep her promise, is on immigration. Um, Joe Biden, when he was running for office, promised that within the first 100 days of his administration— that we would have a path to citizenship. He promised that he would push for a path to citizenship, and he has yet to he has yet to um, actually fulfill that promise. And instead, what the Biden administration has done is replace um, some um, Trump era um, legislation with things that are that are worse, that are more restrictive in terms of who can come into this country. Instead, uh, like last week, waived 26 laws in order to be able to um, create a new border wall. So, which is why the immigrant justice community, the immigrant community is coming out stronger now. What, what we're saying is, you've done great on everything else. It's time that you concentrate on, on helping our families. Our families, we, we, we go to the same schools as everybody else's children. We go to the same jobs. We shop in the same supermarkets, go to the same churches. Um, we build- Pay taxes, because that's pay, the one I always hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the misinformation I always hear, they don't pay taxes. Yeah, they pay taxes, because immigrants ha- get a tax ID number from the federal government, mm-hmm. even though they're not allowed to work, but if you do work, pay taxes. Mm-hmm. So all those things have happened, which is why we went to DC last week. It was time to hold the Biden administration accountable, but it was also time to go meet with members of Congress who seem to be supporting the immigrant community and those that were in the middle to have conversations with them and tell them, we're not asking for new legislation anymore because we've seen that that's been difficult because Congress can't come to a decision on most anything. Who's going to run them? Who's going to run them, whether (laughs) it's going to stay open or not. Um, Where we're telling Congress is there's an easy fix. Rather than worrying about... um, about DACA and the Dreamers and TPS and updating this and that or creating new legislation, update a law that's existed for over 100 years, the registry. We, we got bills in Congress in both the House and the Senate, and we met with members of Congress to say, support that. All you have to do is, is sign on to it, be a co-sponsor. If this passes, we update the registry date and more people qualify. Eight million out of the 11 would qualify for a path to citizenship. So what's, what is the registry and what is the change you want to see made? Well, the registry, what it is, is um, it's uh, legislation that says if you've been in the country since before a specific date, you can qualify for an automatic um, path to citizenship. Mm-hmm. You qualify to be able to apply for your green card and then your citizenship. It was updated. It, um, it was once 1946. In 1986, during the Reagan administration, it was updated to 1972. Mm-hmm. 
And that's the last update we've seen to the registry since then. So anybody who's been here since before 1972 can qualify for a path to citizenship. As you can tell, it needs to be updated. Mm-hmm. So what we're suggesting is that rather than worrying about updating it, updating it often or after it uh, expires or after 30 or 40 years uh, like what's happening now, have it say so if you've been in the country at least seven years, you can qualify. So it automatically updates every year. If you've been here six years this year, next year you qualify, and so on and so on and so on. So this way it'll automatically update itself every year mm. just because as long as you've been here at least seven years. Mm. And that's what we're asking members of Congress to pass. In the House is um, Bill 1511, and I forgot which is the one in the Senate. And uh, we've got a lot of co-sponsors. We met with um, the offices of Alma Adams, Representative Renee Fauché, and Jeff Jackson. All three of them seem very um, happy to do this. Um, the one... Definite um, yes we got was Renee Frechet's office. Um, Adam's office should be following soon, and hopefully by the end of November, um, Jeff Jackson's office. We will be talking to other legislators. Um, the office of um, Tillis, Senator Tillis, they declined to meet with us, mm-hmm. uh, not even his staff. Um, we're hoping to be able to meet with them to discuss this, the, the Senate version. Other than that, while we were in D.C., we went to um, have a civil disobedience at the White House to tell the administration that it's time for a change, that for the administration to actually support immigrants. Um, sadly, the, immigra- the, the administration, rather than being very welcome to the idea, they decided that they wanted to threaten to, to, um, to cancel the meeting. In the end, we went through with it, and hopefully we'll be meeting with the White House soon to discuss um, how to move forward. Five people were arrested out of 100 people who participated mm-hmm. in that. So you said you went through the meeting. Is that with representatives of Biden's administration, or with whom did you meet? We will hopefully be meeting with the Biden administration soon. Okay, so you Um, were able to put something on the books, but not carried out yet. Not carried out yet, because Mm -hmm. they were um, scared of the Biden administration being held accountable for his horrible immigration history. Mm -hmm. Um, And are you optimistic about this other, uh, as far as the registry legislation, I know you said you're not trying to get a new brand new law passed. You want to update one that exists, but it's still legislation in a very, uh, uh, what's the word? Jam, jam logged, just mm-hmm. dead stopped government. Basically. <laughs> uh, is it something that you're optimistic can get, can get moving, can get momentum? Uh, we're very optimistic. Um, to give you an idea of um, what kind of uh, potential this has, mm-hmm. right now the conservatives are pushing through a different legislation called the Dignity Act, which is a horrible legislation that keeps people in limbo, keeps people undocumented, and just makes them renew some type of um, permission to be here without a path to citizenship. That only has about 10 co-sponsors, mm-hmm. while the Registry Act that we're proposing already has around 100. Mm. So something conservatives are pushing has about 10 sponsors, while something positive has about 100 sponsors. So we're feeling very optimistic about it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I feel like there is more here, um, creating more pro- more legal pathways. There's some of these demands, I could say, of the uh, of the immigration reform movement, ending the militarization of our borders. Is that something that had that even started yet? In terms of that new wall, if you want to call it that board, um, border barrier that Biden is uh, border barrier that Biden is building. Wow, uh, had that started yet when you guys were up there? Um, we, we were up there about three weeks ago or mm. two oh, and a half okay. weeks ago. Yeah. So all this news came out afterwards. So mm-hmm. 
We're working right now, having conversations. We have weekly meetings of firm to mm-hmm. discuss, or bi-weekly meetings to discuss this. So uh, we're still working through what is our national strategy, what is our national demand on that. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully soon we can we can make a change. Right. So just sort of before we go, what, on the local front, what have you guys been? Uh, what have you been working on? What issues have you been seeing in the community that you feel like need more attention? Um, um, some of the stuff we definitely need to see um, more attention around are housing. Mm-hmm. Um, Jessica, if you next time you bring her on, we we'll, might be able to elaborate on this. But we we need to do something around housing because so many people are facing homelessness. Mm-hmm. People are being priced out of their communities as our city council continues to allow the gentrifiers to buy more and more of our of our city. Mm-hmm. So I think we, an interesting aspect of that that Jessica works a lot around is renters' rights mm-hmm. and the fact that so many people don't know when they have the right to remain in their house. Um, mm-hmm. And this is not squatters' rights by any means. This is this is stuff that's written well into law. Mm-hmm. And you know, you might hear, "Oh, we need to work on housing," and it's a housing crisis, and and that can feel so overwhelming. Like, okay, well, how do I fix that? But I think renters' rights is such a seri- is such a concrete, uh, mm-hmm. uh, tangible thing that doing education around is so important. About yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize simple things, and um, like um, just because you have a notice from your landlord um, that you have to leave mm-hmm. before your lease expires, um, you don't actually have to obey that unless it's a court order, unless you've had the uh, the right, unless you've been able to go to court. Uh, if once your lease expires, that's a different story. But mm-hmm. like, um, if your lease hasn't expired yet, you have a right to go to court. Your landlord has to go to court before they evict you. Um, so little things like this, which is why the, the work that Jessica's doing is so important. People, because Jessica also comes at this from the perspective of somebody who was a renter, mm-hmm. who um, who came into Action and See. She was first a member of Action and See, and then she became an organizer with Action and See because they wanted their campaign. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Robert, you're doing great work too. I know you listen, so let's not leave him <laughs> out. Um, yeah, no, Robert's doing amazing work. Right, body cams mm-hmm. and holster monitors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, what do you hope to? Let's. I don't mean to put the pressure on you. Uh, I guess we're kind of coming to the close to the end of this year, and we don't know if the government's even going to be in action uh, coming up on the next lockdown. But let's say 2024. What are some of the goals? Other than, I mean, you've just laid out plenty of goals throughout this last 30-minute <laughs> conversation. Uh, but what would you like to see Action NC sort of t- take a, a bigger role in in fighting for in the, in the coming year? I definitely want to see Action NC take uh, an even bigger role um, statewide on, on the housing issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, first off, we're, we're the organization that people from around the state call when it comes to organizing on housing issues. Policy, obviously, NC Justice Center and others, but when it comes to organizing, we're the group that people call from around the state. As a matter of fact, people call us from other states. Mm -hmm. But I want to see us take on a bigger role where we're passing broader legislation on statewide. I also want to see us take on more immigrant justice um, issues here in in North Carolina, get back to the action and see we were before COVID, because uh, COVID did hinder our work a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working on rebuilding um, since everything started opening again. But I want to see us take on a bigger role on immigrant justice issues in here in North Carolina and really total, really hold the line and not allow um, law enforcement or um, to work with um, immigration officials. Definitely a bigger role on um, police accountability, holding the police accountable, and creating a bigger 
connection between the the black community and the, um, the Latina community mm-hmm. because th- we face so many of the same issues. For example, Ruben Galindo, who was assassinated by CMPD. Mm-hmm. This is a man who his hands were up. He was holding a, a phone in his hand, and yet they killed him anyway. So we have there are a lot of similarities. We get stopped by the police just as much, um, here in North Carolina at least. So we, I want to see us have a, broad, a stronger black and brown coalition here in North Carolina and really go against what, how the, the South works, create a new South where all of us that are BIPOC, um, black, indigenous, people of color, are working together. Um, mm-hmm. These are some of the things I want to see us. I also want to see us take on more of the women of color issues through our campaigns, um, rage, race and gender equity. These are some of the ones that I definitely mm-hmm. want to see us working on because we're already doing amazing work with the seniors uh, through our SWAN um, chapter. But yeah, these are some of the things that I want to see us take on here in North Carolina and see bigger, bigger rallies in North Carolina mm-hmm. to, to really show that the people are united in wanting social justice for everyone. Right. Well, Hector, I really appreciate you coming on here, man. Um, that's your alarm. That means we gotta, we're done here. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your insights. Uh, I'm sure that I'll be reaching out to you plenty of times in the coming, uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one thing I wanted to touch on that just sort of passed my brain when you said we're talking about women of color and, and wage inequality. I had just been talking to Latoya Faustin from She Built the City about a separate story that I'm working on now, but she they work to sort of uh, help encourage women and people of color to go into the trades and not see that as you know see that as a very sustainable career path and. Uh, we were just talking yesterday about how COVID-19 sort of helped that stigma, uh, at least for a little bit, of the stigma of seeing folks as essential workers as opposed to, um, uh, I don't know, whatever st- stigmatized thing they might have seen. And we just sort of mm-hmm. turn the other cheek to folks who aren't, uh, who are my least favorite word, unskilled labor, which doesn't exist, but whomever they thought of as, as doing unskilled labor and now seeing them as more essential since COVID-19. And I'm, I'm basically rambling on to get to the point where have you seen the, any sort of change in that sort of view of folks who are in the Hispanic community who have, who might work as essential workers or was it just a temporary thing in terms of just viewpoints of society? As our values um, are changing here in our community, I am seeing more of a respect um, for those that are essential workers. Um, not on the legislative side to the, yet. Right. Um, but a, a mile behind or two. Yeah, we're still a mile behind, and people continue falling off buildings without strong enough um, safety measures. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not enough being done by the local government to actually address that. But um, as a community, I am seeing a bit of a difference where we're starting to appreciate people more. And I, I attribute that to COVID, just people see people's values changing, people's priorities changing, people seeing that we're all human beings. Um, there's, there's a shift in consciousness that I've definitely been seeing since things started reopening. Just COVID showed us just how life is short, just how short it is and how we could be valuing each other more, valuing being together more. So yes, I am seeing a difference mm-hmm. because of it and appreciation for essential workers. Absolutely. And that also reminds me something I did want to chat with you a little bit as your, your photography career, which is sort of blowing up. Uh, and I've, I've seen multiple exhibits that you're involved with. It's Oprah Collective. And you actually have a exhibit that's opening this coming weekend at Vapa Center. So 
Tell me a little bit about what Ober Collective is and what, 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 how folks can check it out this weekend. Well, Ober Collective is a group of Latine artists, um, multidisciplinary. We have painters, poets, photographers, um, singers. We, we're multidisciplinary and we're a group that's existed for over 10 years. Um, and we're part of the board of directors for the Visual and Performing Arts Center. We're one of the founding organizations and we have our own gallery. We, what we do is we, we bring about um, Latina culture, we promote Latina culture, and, um, and help elevate Latina artists. Mm-hmm. So as one of the things that we like to do, we like to give our members, people that are part of Over Collective's uh, month-long exhibits, um, as well as work with the community um, for the outside wall to show other people's work. This, this month, um, starting this Saturday, it's going to be my turn um, to have an exhibit. It's going to be called Pandemic Year One. It's about the first year of the COVID um, pandemic, and it's all analog photography, film photography um, that I did on the first year of the pandemic. I just went out in the streets to see how people were living, and I started noticing certain things, and things like the reopen NC movement, um, seeing um, that was the same year as that, um, that George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were killed by the police and other things like that. So I caught the beauty, but also caught some of the ugliness of life during that time. And that's what the exhibit is going to be about. And when is the uh, when is the opening on Saturday? The opening is going to be at 4 p.m. It's going to be from 4 to 6 at the Ober Collective Gallery, which is inside the Visual Performing Arts Center at 700 North Tryon Street. Awesome. Can't wait to check it out. Um, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for coming on and chatting with me and uh, looking forward to seeing the exhibit. Yeah, thanks. I hope to see you guys there. All right. See ya. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com.